Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. I'm here with David Craig, editor of Real Clear Defense. David, good to talk to you again. Yeah, good to be with everyone today. Today, we're speaking with Elbridge Colby, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development from 2017 to 2018 under President Trump and the lead official in the development of the 2018 National Defense Strategy. He's the co-founder and principal of the Marathon Initiative, a nonprofit research organization focused on developing U.S. strategies. Most recently, he is the author of The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict, in which he lays out in part the case for challenging China's rise and America's best options for countering that expansion in the region. Elbridge Colby, welcome to Hot Wash. Great to be here. Thanks, John. Thanks, David. Uh, really looking forward to our conversation. So let's just start by trying to encapsulate the the central thesis of the book uh, as best we can. And uh, then I know, I know David's got a, a ton of questions and, and we'll get into it from there. Great. Well, I, you know, I think actually the title is a good place to, to start for that. And I'll try to be brief, but denial, it's a two, a two kind of phased or two level a reference. There's a geopolitical level. And then like any good defense strategy, there's a, there's a defense strategy that proceeds from that grand strategy. So, you know, a lot of this is really shaped by my Pentagon experience and what's useful in a strategy, uh, particularly at this point that it's really more of a framework, a way for making, uh, optimizing decisions in conditions of scarcity and uncertainty. So that's really kind of the, the the genesis of the book in a lot of ways. But all right, so what do we really want to do at the geopolitical level? There's been a lot of highfalutin kind of ideas over the last generation, but we're now in a world in which we don't have a super abundance of resources to pour against all the various threats we might perceive in the world. Instead, we got to make decisions. My view is the most significant challenge to Americans' security and particularly their freedoms and prosperity is the domination of one of the world's key market areas, which tend to be clustered in particular regions, by another state, uh, which could become hostile. And by far the most important region of the world is Asia, which is 50%, roughly more or less, and growing of global GDP. And it also is home to, by far, the world's lar- uh, other uh, superpower, uh, China, which is now roughly you know, roughly in our vicinity and power. We're, we are the two suns of this solar system. I guess solar systems don't have more than one sun, but two Jupiters of the solar system, if you will. Um, if China dominates Asia, in my view, it will gravely undermine Americans' freedoms and prosperity in particular. So we want to avoid that. We want to deny its hegemony. We don't want to transform it. We don't want to break it apart. We don't want to subordinate it. We don't want to conquer it. Uh, we might wish for a different government, but that's not our core objective. Okay, to achieve that objective, we can't do it by ourselves, both from a power perspective, particularly you know because power tends to attenuate and will over distance. Uh, so the main theater is Asia. So we got to work with other countries to create a sustainable and favorable regional balance of power. And that means working with strong countries that also don't want to be subordinated to China's regional hegemony like Japan, India, Australia, et cetera. Uh, The problem is that sounds good in theory, favorable balance of power. Okay, you can actually see it happening right now with things like the Quad and AUKUS and so forth. China has a natural strategy to undermine that. Now, China's incentive is not to precipitate a large conflict with a cohesive and mobilized coalition like Hitler did in 1941-42. Rather, it's to try to pick it apart and avoid fighting the whole thing, but rather kind of collapse it, cause a run on the bank, if you will, by making people think it's not going to protect them and get them to bandwagon, as the scholars would say, but basically cut a deal when they still can. And the way I think of this is China's best strategy is a focused and sequential strategy. So make examples, you know, laser in on a couple of exposed parts of that coalition, do it a couple of times and basically send the message to everybody in the region that they better make their deal now or be punished later. And it's a good strategy. 
Um, I think the military part, which is the second part of that denial reference, is critical. People, I think, tend to underestimate the salience of the military dimension in the Sino-American competition because China is is seeing that it's not going to be able to to attain regional hegemony just through coercion, through economics and suasion. People don't want to give up their independence. So to get there, they're going to have a strong incentive to use the military instrument, which they are developing and, and honing as we speak. So in that context, what is it that we need to do to, to take that military focused and sequential strategy away? Well, we need to deny China's ability to subordinate one of our key, our, our allies, and I include Taiwan in that, in that context as essentially like two thirds or 70% of an ally, uh, to deny their ability to subordinate one of those, um, one of those allies within the coalition. And that's, you know, think Japan, Taiwan, Philippines, South Korea, Australia, et cetera. And, you know, the reason is, is because those countries are connected to America's, what I think of as a differentiated credibility. It's credibility in the region in a contextual sense. And, and the steel in the spine of this coalition is American credibility because we're the big, we're the big heavy, you know, just as a matter of scale. Right, so if you can right. discredit us, the thing will fall apart, basically. And China will be regional hegemon, which has happened for men, much of the history of Asia, uh, more or less. Let's simplify a little bit. Uh, so we want to avoid that. From, we want to prevent that from happening while protecting enough countries within our, our side of the perimeter, our defense perimeter, uh, that we're strong enough. But at the same time, without exposing ourselves to uh, wars that are too costly and risky to be worth it, and I'm very conscious of what the American people should be prepared to, to, to countenance in terms of their cost and their risk. But the key here is military strategy of denial. It's not a military strategy of dominance, not regime change. It's not a military strategy of distant defense. It's basically saying we will be able to block China from subordinating, say, Taiwan because it's within our perimeter, but by extension, Japan, Philippines, et cetera. And that's that's where the, the rubber meets the road. It's a very high standard from a military planning point of view, which then has major implications for our degree of focus on Asia. So I am becoming increasingly, if I, if I can say, extreme in how much we're going to need to focus on Asia because I think we've essentially blown our opportunity to have a more nuanced and balanced approach. And now to get that level where we will be able to have a strategy of a military strategy of denial against the superpower, we're so far behind, we're going to have to almost stop almost everything else we're doing except nuclear deterrence and low cost counterterrorism at this point. So that's the basic upshot of the book. Um, but again, it's really designed to be not a point solution on every any given issue, but a sort of strategic framework that will allow, I hope, more productive debates within the defense discussion in particular. David, your background in your graduate work was looking at China. What did you take away from the book? Well, Bridge, just to give you some background, I was a Marine intelligence analyst for 20 years. And by about 2009, I was able to go to the DIA's uh, school. I guess it's NIU now. And so I ended up writing a thesis on China and Southeast Asia and whether or not China was becoming a regional hegemon, which of course, seems <laughs> obvious at this point. <laughs> you were ahead of the curve. Uh, That's for sure. Um, well, what was weird is my thesis advisor had to warn me several times that that wasn't the groupthink at the time, which it wasn't, which was to him rather stunning that these academics and China followers would have been sort of subsumed into this peaceful rise, so to speak, of, of China. So when I started with it, I studied their history from Mao until now. And what became clear to me was that, the you know, if you look at it in terms of ends, ways, and means, the ends never diverted from what Mao 
had envisioned. It's just the evolution of the ways and means to get there that seem to have evolved over time. So your book is fantastic. Unfortunately, I think some of the criticisms seem to be more politically motivated as compared to substantive, which is sad because our our national security strategy should be apolitical, which it tries to be, it seems, at, at, at most times. In fact, one of the people you had mentioned one of your previous discussions that was critical of the book I had interviewed before and I brought up elements of national power and, you know, sort of the struggle of liberal democracies to be able to even conceive of one, let alone implement it. And when I laid out the elements of national power, like in the dime fill model, they weren't even aware of it. And I didn't realize till later, someone told me that in IR school, it's not taught. So I don't know if you encountered that at DOD as well. And as part of this strategy of denial, how do you fit in all these elements of national power? However, of course, your book's focus is more more of the national defense strategy aspect of it. Well, thanks, David. I, I really appreciate the kind kind words, and I um, I'll be candid. Some of the some of the criticisms I, I have been frustrated by. I think they're they're you know, um, you know, th- I have views on on a range of issues, uh, as everybody does. I think that's your you know right as an American, but we should be able to have a, a conversation um, on the merits, and these issues are are critical. Um, and uh, I hope, but I've been more pleased by. The broader uh, reception, which has seemed to be in the spirit that you offer it, you know, which is to say, let's let's take this discussion on the merits, and that's what I'm keen to have. And you know, the point I I think is like I think we all, whether we're liberal, conservative, libertarian, socialist, whatever, is we all want to be able to ensure that we have the power and the ability to chart our own future and make our own decisions. And that's that's you know we should we should make it on our own terms. And that's what I'm interested in here. Uh, and I think that's 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 very much in question. Um, in terms of your specific question about the, the dime fill, I mean, my feeling is that the military element is, as I think I mentioned before, is being underestimated, frankly, not only in the broader foreign policy discussion, but at least in my time in the Pentagon, I, I was actually struck that there was too little focus on the potential for a great power war. There's a, a Marine I worked with, a very uh, decorated Marine, uh, a wonderful guy who would point out, he'd say, Bridge, the difference between you and most Marine general officers is you believe a war with China or Russia is possible, and they don't. Mm. And I said, well, I mean, what am I, you know, <laughs> what's the civilian doing here <laughs> talking about, you know, you guys are the one organization with a legal monopoly on large-scale violence. Like, the rest of us can't do that. It's your job, you know? And I think, you know, we know all the reasons that the focus on the Middle East, and I think lurking behind that is just a sense that a major war is impossible. It just doesn't happen because it hasn't happened since 1945. And while well, it's nuclear weapons or we're smarter than they, we used to be. And I just look at it and I think, I don't, I, don't, I don't buy it. I mean, it might be true, but it very, very, very well might not be. And if we, the best way to find out it might not be is if we're not prepared for it. So what I want to do is I want to make the military instrument sort of irrelevant. But the way to do that is to think through it super rigorously uh, and, and clearly, and then get to a point where we persuade the Chinese that it's not in their interest to test us uh, on these critical matters. And I think people in the defense space shouldn't be shy about that. I think there's a lot of kind of explaining and sort of 
almost an apologetic, hey, yeah, the military, but we got to get the economic piece right. And, you know, <laughs> uniformed officers talking about the importance of the DINM. Like there are 300 million other people, 330 million people doing <laughs> diplomacy, information and economic. You guys do the military. Do you be the best that you yeah. can be because we need you. Yeah. And so that's kind of another thing that was motivating my, and I go into that in the book, you know, that, that it really is a military a competition. I think I think there's some leading figures in the administration and elsewhere who say this is going to be a political and economic, but not a military competition. Wrong. That is a that is a contingent reality. That is a contingent point. If we are ill prepared, it will be a military competition. I think. If we're well prepared, it will be a political and economic condition. But that's presuming, as a given, what we actually want to achieve. Right. When well, a frustrating part that came up in my thesis research that you bring out too, is how we're constantly surprised by the progress of the People's Liberation Army, not just in straight military force, but also cyber, you know, the whole range of military capabilities. But I mean, how does that still happen? I mean, we're still surprised, right? Well, that's, it is kind of remarkable. I mean, people were, my, my good friend and you know, brilliant analyst, uh, Tom Shugart pointed out that we were surprised again by the growth of China's missile forces in ways that are potentially quite significant for force planning. For instance, the Marines concept, which I think is a great, is exactly the kind of thing we want, but it's contingent upon some assessments of the military balance and the evolution of Chinese military capabilities in our own. I, I don't know whether we were surprised behind the curtain, but we were surprised in, in the broader discussion. Um, the nuclear forces, I mean, people have been looking at this for years and boom, you know, we are, I mean, we are surprised again. And I mean, at this point, this is kind of how I feel about a lot of discussions about will China fall apart? Will it stumble? Possible, but I'm not counting on it because I think we've been counting on China to break for us in a way and make our lives easier and it hasn't gone that way. So we'd be better off assuming that that they're, they're, they've got their, their stuff in a sock, if you will, and they're going to continue making progress. Well, one aspect of that too, that I really like that you had mentioned that was a huge takeaway from my thesis advisor, who ironically was a China missile guy back in the 70s and 80s. He kept telling me that China doesn't want a big war. However, they want to amass forces to the extent that war is not even an option for any adversary. They're going to have such overwhelming which is what they're gearing up for in terms of Taiwan, of course. Um, they're doing that in the South China Sea by these man-made islands. I don't want to go to the full on to the Taiwan thing because that's later in your book, but and a huge current topic. But I mean, that's a big aspect of what you bring out in your book that, and you just mentioned, is the military aspect. And in some ways, I'm surprised that people were so shocked by all these missile silos. In fact, I wonder if that's some sort of information operations campaign by the Chinese, just because we haven't been publicly tracking the extent to which they've been growing their nuclear forces over the last 20 years. Well, I think you are. And I think the, the point of your, your, what your advisor was saying, I don't know whether how he meant it in particular, but with all due respect to him, sometimes I think that point is, 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 is asserted like the Chinese don't, want a war. Well, maybe, maybe they don't want a war if they know they're going to lose it, but they might be prepared to, for one, if they're going to win it. Like who would have thought we would have invaded Iraq in 1988, but then 2003 looked like it was going to be a cakewalk to quote, I think it was Donald Rumsfeld or whoever, maybe Dick Cheney, but you know, 
um, that that's a that's a contextual assessment, you know. And also, few people genuinely want a war, but in relation to the alternatives, China may be prepared to go go to war to avoid certain outcomes or achieve certain outcomes that it really wants. And again, that's going to be dependent on the military balance above all, because at the end of the day, Chairman Mao had a point. Power comes out of the barrel of a gun. I mean, you know, it's, 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 you know, we don't think about it because we live in a law bound society where the rules of violence are very established, but the international system is remains anarchic. And, you know, we're accustomed to America being the predominant power over the last generation, but that's not a given. Um, and, you know, Taiwan may want to be free, but if China has a decisive military option and can, you know, subordinate the island and put us in a position where we don't have a real, a realistic response, it doesn't matter what Taiwan wants. It doesn't matter. Well, and it, it, it comes back to the, this kind of central issue of credibility that you focus on, which is that the key component of deterrence is the Chinese belief that at what level, what is, what is our quote red line? At what level will the U.S. intercede? And, and, you know, the whole gray zone campaign in, in the South China Sea is essentially feeling out what that red line is. At what point are we willing to respond? I mean, that you know, David's posting in the morning recon constantly articles about, you know, the increased uh, overflights for the, the Chinese military, uh, Chinese Air Force into Taiwan, or, you know, it, I mean, it can be littoral shifts. It doesn't have to be a major, you know, conflict. Uh, but if China believes that Taiwan looks a lot like uh, Crimea, and that we won't respond, uh, we won't risk blood and treasure, you know, then, then yeah, of course they're going to act. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I'm, a, I'm of the view that the gray zone is not the primary threat, but I, I, I take your point, John, that, that, and, and David, that, that, you know, th- there are, there is, there are significant things happen within it. Some of them relating to the decisive thing, which is a perception of how the big war would go. I mean, I, I, I use the term imagined wars in the book, right? Which is, to me, what the real thing of win without fighting is, is you win because everybody knows how it would go and they decide not to go through the pain of having a war, but just just kind of skip to the conclusion, right? That's, that's I think, right, a lot right. of what happens in international affairs is countries not doing something that would be self-defeating, but reckoning with the reality of military power. Now, when there's a transition, that's when things get hairy, Right. You know, over the last 30 years, the Chinese and the Russians or 20 years between, say, 1990 and 2010, the Russians and the Chinese didn't challenge the Americans because they knew they were going to get their, you know, their their tails kicked. Right. But now that it's become more uncertain, this is where things can really happen uh, and, and, and people can roll the dice. So, I mean, I think that the, I don't think the Taiwanese are going to give up because of Chinese provocations in the gray zone. I think at the end of the day, the Chinese are going to have to make a call whether they're going to a go no go call on a big invasion. Now, if they get to the point where it's very clear that the Chinese will win and Taiwan will be will be will fall, and the Americans either will be unwilling or be unable to mount an effective defense, I think it could happen without a war because the the in in the way that like Czechoslovakia in 1938 happened, right? The Czechs were prepared to fight, but it was obviously pointless, so they just had to deal with it, right? And I think that that kind of scenario is possible. But that, again, is about if we're going to avoid that outcome, it's not so much focusing on the gray zone. It's focusing on making sure that we could win the war if it did escalate, because then the Chinese won't have that coercive leverage. 
Exactly. Right. And I, and I bring up the gray zone activities primarily in that context of yeah. fe- feeling things out. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're essentially, you know, uh, probing you know, and, uh, yeah. they're, they're probing their dress rehearsals, their low level, you know, have a habit of escalating. And, you know, the same thing is true of the Spratleys and everything else. So let's talk about the, the, the network of alliances that you talked about and whether that needs to be formal. Are we talking about, you know, some sort of new NATO like organization in Asia? Um, we have, really unilateral agreements with several of those partners. Um, uh, Talk about how do we build a network of allies without, uh, you know, giving up too much of our uh, ability to make decisions. Right. Well, no, I think that's the, and, and we overcommit ourselves. I mean, um, this is, this is one of the hardest parts of kind of thinking through the book is it's kind of a bit of a multi-level game in my view. So I think the key thing to focus on here is it's more about the function than the form. What we want is a grouping of states that come together and work together that are sufficiently strong to stand up to China's attempts to dominate them. Doesn't matter what form that takes, if at all. I mean, as I I think, you know, there have been really important alliances in the past that weren't even acknowledged. I mean, I think the, the French, quote unquote, alliance with, uh, with the Ottoman Turks which was pretty controversial at the time, you know, it was very significant in, in French foreign policy vis-a-vis the Habsburgs, for instance, right? And of course, our relationship with the Soviet Union uh, was very controversial. So, but, but my point here is more that like, the point is that that network needs to operate. So we don't need to, we shouldn't be trying to fit countries into a Procrustean model, you know, of say, of a NATO approach. And I've said this to say some senior Japanese decision makers over the years. We don't, that may be more, complicated and costly than it's worth. Now, so I think ideally we would keep this this coalition as loose as possible, right? Because then we are less committed because the things that we have to worry, you know, we have to worry about being overcommitted. We don't want to get in bad, dumb wars. I mean, we don't got to get in wars at all, but we definitely don't want to get in dumb wars that are unnecessary and sapping, right? But the other problem is that this loose coalition runs us the risk of countries thinking that we're bluffing. Right at the, the, the end of, the, and then we see this with the Taiwan situation and the tenor of the conversation, is that if you're a country in Asia and you're under China's threat, you know you could be in a lot of trouble with the Chinese, and they can do a lot of harm to you. So you're going to only stick your neck out if you have sufficient confidence that there are going to be somebody strong enough, big, big brother, the big heavy, or whatever you want to say, is going to be there and is going to defend you effectively, not just symbolically, right? Not just some like because that's some often lost in the Taiwan discussion is like. It's got to be an effective defense. If the Americans say, yo, we'll defend you, but it's not going to work. That's not good either, right? Um, So I think that's what we need. And that's where alliances come in, I think. So I differentiate between the anti-hegemonic coalition, which is kind of this loose network. You know, I think the quad will probably be part of it, but not, you know, there'll be kind of overlapping, you know, forms. But then the alliances are kind of like the steel and the backbone. You know, that's like, hey, Japan, hey, South Korea. Taiwan, you know, Philippines, Australia, we're with you. So countries that need it, uh, that, that we need to keep on side, that's going to be the ones. And there may be other countries. We may get, I would rather, really rather not, but say Vietnam is probably likely to stand up to China, but it's going to be very vulnerable to China. Do we need to extend an alliance commitment to, China, to Vietnam? I'd rather not, just in principle, but also because it's a land power. It's not our strong suit. I'd rather stick to maritime Asia. And then I would uh, ditto with India. I'd rather they, uh, you know, the Indians and the Vietnamese seem very independent minded. They're more like Finland. Right. They'll, they'll, the, they don't want us, to, they don't want to rely on us. Great. Right. right. <laughs> Great. Yeah. 
So we should be just like selling them everything we possibly can, allowing them to buy from the Russians because great, right. it might, you know, hurt the PLA at a lower cost and more efficiently than we can do. So two thumbs up. Uh, and then if we really need to consider an alliance partnership, let's cross that bridge when we come to it. But I think one of the reasons I'm so focused on Taiwan is I don't want us to have to look to compensate and then be in a tough position with like a Vietnam or a Thailand that we have this kind of fake kind of quasi, very like thin alliance, quote unquote alliance with. But I'd rather like kind of try to hold to our current perimeter if possible, which is, you know, our strong suit again is, you know, sea and air and technology. And 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 that's what we do as a kind I mean, we're kind of like Britain relative to the continent in a global context. And you know, as a society, democratic society, that's, you know, we're not, we're not going to throw people into the trenches and the meat grinder uh, in the way that the Chinese might be prepared to. I think that's an underappreciated aspect of your book, too, is people don't understand the history of alliances and coalitions. And going back to George Washington, he was very leery of alliances because he knew that alliances might enslave our national interests to that of another nation. Um, and so you sort of allude to that, and that's why a coalition can benefit us much more so than uh, an alliance, because it can kind of evolve and flow over time. And probably the greatest, and I think you bring this out in the book, the great, probably the best thing about the Quad is the fact that it's gotten India much more involved. I mean, of course, it coincided with the border skirmishes with China, which is still ongoing. Um but they're taking a much more aggressive stance or realizing that Southeast Asia is in their national interest now. So like you said, rather than rely on us, they're thinking of what they can do to extend their national interest in, in this regard as well, which I think is fantastic. The other thing I wanted to get back to that in my research, and, and you get to this too, which is the more militaristic sort of aspect of China's thinking is they use this term core national interest. And when they do that, it means by any means necessary, they are going to make sure that whatever they deem as a core national interest becomes China. That's Xinjiang, that's Hong Kong, Tibet. They invaded Tibet, obviously, and basically control it still. Um, and, and what's concerning is that Taiwan is mentioned in there. So if there's anyone that questions what Taiwan, China is willing to do in, in terms of Taiwan, its military. And a, th and a thing you bring out in the book, I think that's really important in regards to Taiwan, is because of some of the diff internal difficulties that China's having right now, um, and Xi Jinping trying to enforce his power, is they're at a vulnerable moment to where you know, a military invasion of Taiwan is not far-fetched. I think my thesis advisor would have altered and evolved his thinking on that due to recent events, probably over the last three to five years, even maybe. Like you said, and and what you get to in chapter 10 of the book, I mean, it's, it's not really that far from the realm of thinking, especially in the wake of what the Afghanistan withdrawal or retreat, as some people regard it, you know. It, it was a huge blow to Southeast Asia. There were reflections in Singapore, Vietnam, Taiwan. Um, they're deeply concerned as to how valid our commitment would be to defending Taiwan. Well, I mean, I think I think it's totally possible that China would would attack Taiwan. I mean, I think at some gut level, it seems improbable because I haven't been alive for a major war. A few people have at this point, but um, 
you know, there wasn't a major war between 1914 and 1815. I mean, I mean, there's the American Civil War, but there weren't, you know, major, major interstate wars of the scale. I mean, there was Crimean stuff, but of the scale of what we're talking about. Um, so it's not, it's not like this is a, something that hasn't happened before. Um, and more to the point, you know, when you put all the factors together, uh, it's pretty compelling uh, if you're sitting in Beijing. I mean, there's a will. There's always been a will to forcibly, uh, well, to, to, in their view, reunify or unify with Taiwan with, by force if necessary. They've never forsworn it um, fundamentally. Uh, and it's, you know, if they want to achieve regional, a regionally dominant position, which I think they're increasingly open about, frankly, and expel the United States from a meaningful position in Asia and, you know, reduce these, in their view, hostile forces, they have to, they have to, Taiwan is the natural first step, right? So they've got the, they've got the intent. That's pretty clear. They increasingly have a plausible way. I mean, as the Taiwan defense minister said last week, not only do they may have the capacity right now, and by 2025, he said they could maybe do it really easily and at little cost. And that tracks with what we're hearing from, you know, senior Pentagon officials, including on the record, uh, you know, which is pretty amazing. So they've got a will, they've got a way, and then they may have a, a closing window perception, right? If a lot of the stuff that started through the offset, national defense strategy, these kind of investments in Asia, higher technology things, a lot of those will come into the U.S. forces in the late 20s, early 30s. Um, as people like Tom Sugar have pointed out, well, then that 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 gives you urgency. So, so what is it that's preventing Xi Jinping from pulling the trigger at some point in the next five years? Well, uh, it could be concern about China's international reputation, but I mean, I don't think they're particularly. I mean, look at the response to the pandemic, right? I mean, I don't think that's very. I mean, they're clearly willing to do things that hurt their quote unquote reputation, if that even means anything. Secondly, it could be uh, the economic consequences, but. Uh, why do we think that uh, a global uh, th that countries won't just adapt to do what China says? The largest market in the world, right? At this point, what like the Europeans are going to stand up at the end of the day and tank their own economies or our own? I mean, there's huge, huge investments by American companies into China right now, in the midst of a confrontation. And they bought off Cambodia. Yeah, exactly. They bought off Cambodia to in order to prevent the. Uh, ASEAN from making a unilateral condemnation of China's activities right. in the South China Seas. Yeah. So I think, I mean, maybe there's something else, but then I think about, well, Xi Jinping is pretty tough minded guy. I mean, I, yeah. you know, and I, I, I mean, I have a lot of respect for the Chinese. I think they must see these things too. It makes me really worried. Well, I, you know, what's surprising to me when you bring up Xi Jinping is when was it? You probably know more about this than I do, but it wasn't a month or two ago that he made the comment that their advantage is the fact that the United States is unwilling to take casualties. I mean, that should have been a shocker yeah. for most people here, I think, that it's in his thinking, you know. Am I going to am I going to go into Taiwan and is the U.S. going to try to defend it because they're not willing to take casualties? Yeah, I'm, the Chinese don't care. I mean, there's some accountability, but it's it's that's clearly to their benefit. I mean, we have a, a superb professional military, but I mean, our society as a whole is not militarized, thankfully, right? And this is a distant yeah. contest. I mean, this has been in the Chinese view since Korea when they were dramatically inferior to to us in technology, which is not the case anymore. Uh, not to mention that she. At the uh, speech at the anniversary, the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party, he said something like, 
the Chinese people will stand up to threats and pressure to their sovereignty with like a, a great wall of blood and bones or skulls or something. I mean, real yeah. blood curdling kind of stuff. I mean, I, and, and the, the man himself, his father was purged. He lived five years in like a cave yeah. <laughs> banned by the, during the cultural revolution. He's a tough guy. Right. Um, so I think I'm not saying, I mean, he's not sending people out to starve in the countryside like Mao Zedong, but he, I, I would wager that he's prepared to lose a lot of Chinese to achieve uh, national, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, as he's put it. Absolutely. To get over that Western slight, you know, is still in the national mind there to a great extent, right? That's why the population there sort of justifies and, and is behind any of this activity on his part, right? Yeah. I mean, who knows what they really think? They don't have a democracy, but I certainly <laughs> think that, I mean, we have a tendency to ascribe to when we don't like another country, we said ascribe it to quote unquote nationalism. But I would think that probably most Chinese are proud and patriotic. And I don't think that we should necessarily think that, that they would vote for a different and it's possible. They would vote for a more aggressive policy. <laughs> right. So would you, does the theory of the book inexorably lead to s some sort of more explicit security uh, commitment to Taiwan? I mean, right now we've got the, the Taiwan invasion prevention act was floated in the, in the Senate, Rick Scott, um, you know, there's Democrats, uh, you know, Elaine Luria just wrote a op-ed in the post, you know, echoing uh, Scott's, the uh, Taiwan prevention act, which is essentially a kind of, AUMF for Biden to uh, have pre-approved authority to, to act quickly if there were an incursion in Taiwan. Do you think that it would be useful to have a more explicit security commitment to Taiwan? Not right now. I think we should laser focus on the cap capability where we're way behind. I actually think Strategic ambiguity kind of, the, the idea that there's like a binary between strategic ambiguity and strategic clarity, I think is a false uh, sort of binary um, because there's a lot of space in between that. And we've actually moved over the last few years, including actually, particularly under the Biden administration to a much more explicit commitment. Now, we haven't formally changed strategic ambiguity, but everybody in Asia thinks our commitment, our credibility is tied to Taiwan. I mean, the Biden administration has said the rock solid commitment to Taiwan like several times. So. I mean, Jake Sullivan said something at Aspen. The president, I guess he mixed it up, but he basically included Taiwan as a number among allies. So, I mean, if you're in Asia, you're, you know, you're thinking, I mean, the G7 has said, said things, the EU has said things in the US statement. So we're in a, I think our declaratory policy is actually okay. I think China thinks we probably, does think we'd, from that point of view, that we've committed to come. The problem is whether we have the ability and that's where we're not in a good position and where, for instance, I think the NDAA as passed by both houses uh, is really important in, 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 in investing in some of the Pacific deterrence initiatives that we need to like get like now, like forward, resilient for and lethal forward posture, munitions. We may need to keep some platforms that we would rather retire just to have the platforms to launch things before because we're, we can't wait till 2028 because the window is now or is opening now. So that's sort of where I think I, I'm, I'm of the, let's focus on our capability now and, and not worry so much about the declaratory policy stuff. So, so practically speaking, where is the gap between what you were advocating in 2018 and where the Biden administration is now? I mean, the NDAA, I mean, as you're 
referenced there currently there's an expansion of the Navy. There's, uh, there does seem to be an, uh, at least an addressing of several of these things. It doesn't seem to me like there's actually as much of a gap as you might expect between the Trump administration and the Biden administration approach to this. Yeah, I think there's substantial continuity in the sense that they um, are focused on China as the priority pacing threat. And, and in fairness, a lot of, you know, I mean, I, I pay tremendous homage to, to Bob Work and the third offset strategy as, as the man who first made great power competition and particularly China, the focus. Um, I was sort of amused when they, <laughs> the Biden administration seemed to be making some fanfare of dropping great power competition. I was like, well, Bob Work was the man who introduced it. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> all hail Bob Work as far as I'm concerned, but okay, whatever. Um, strategic competition seems okay. But so I think in that level, there's, there's the continuity where the debate really is, I think in practice within the defense discussion is how serious is the problem? So how much do we need to prioritize? How urgent is it? And I, and, and what's the standard? And as you, as you asked before, John, I think we need a denial defense against fait accompli against Taiwan now, like now. And I'm worried that the Biden administration is too long-term focused because they're, the president's budget took a knee, as far as I can tell, over the next five, six, seven years. So it was focused on China, but it was focused on China over the long-term. But my view is right. China's like heart disease, right? If you don't get through the near-term, you can't worry. You don't, you're not going to be able to worry about the long-term. So there's an urgency issue. And I'm worried about what their standard really is. And this is probably difficult to perceive on the outside accurately. But my fear and things like this integrated dis- deterrence discussion and the taking the knee in the near term. This makes me think that they're saying denial. And like Kath Hicks said, denial in our confirmation hearing and Colin Call did. And I mean, Aquilino did, but Aquilino's in uniform is a different situation. But they did talk about denial. But are they really going to do it? Right. And are they instead going to be, you know, what Kirk Campbell said, I think, I think it was the Financial Times, asked him about what would happen if, uh, if China attacked Taiwan. He said, well... The global economy, they'd crush their global economic position. I don't think that's true. No. I, I certainly don't think we could rely on it. Uh, I think things might actually go on more normally than people expect, and Taiwan would fall, and China might well move on. So that's where I'm worried is, is, that, is that it's, you know, we may be, the, the future may balance on a knife's edge. Right. And right now we're not going forward with the urgency. And that's why the, 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 the NDAA is really important because I generally am not in favor of increased defense spending. I think Americans should keep, you know, their spending when they can. But if we're not going to make the cuts we need to make in Europe and the Middle East, we're going to have to increase spending to get it right in the in the Asia Pacific. Now, I'm not sure if the appropriators are going to go along, so that's critical. But I think if we are, we will truly be pound foolish if we're penny wise on this stuff right now because the outcomes could be really bad. One of the fears, too, is that we're already making cuts to the Navy. We're decommissioning ships prematurely in order to invest in future technology and future ships. But that's like you like you just mentioned, that's creating a short term shortfall in our capability to ever defend Taiwan. So and then in Chapter 10, that's where you get into Taiwan. How are we going to do it? How does the mindset at the Pentagon change to where? Hey, 2025 could be the red line. It could be when Xi Jinping pulls the trigger. What are we going to do? Well, I think, I mean, here's the problem. And this is why I have my hair on fire is that you make decisions now in the U.S. government about defense issues and it doesn't pan out for years. So if we're not 
hair on fire right now, we're already behind the curve. In fact, I think this is presumably what Admiral Studeman was meant when he said we may be too late out at, out at Indopaycom a couple months ago, right? That like, okay, I mean, we realized we were going to get into World War II probably by 19, you know, early 1941, but it took several years for the Navy to, to, to gin up with the world's largest shipbuilding industry at the time, which we don't have anymore. China has that world's largest shipbuilding industry. So I think if we're not, which we should have known was coming. Right. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I think, I think we, we need to be really urgent right now. And I think we've actually passed the point where we could be more nuanced and balanced and, and so forth. And so that's what worries me is there's, a, I think there's a presumption that we'll be able to figure it out. And actually by the time, like, very smart military analysts, some of them are already saying we can't do Taiwan, right? You hear that murmurs of that. I heard that 20 years ago. Yeah, but but now, like, I mean, people saying we're losing all these war games. Now, Clint Hynode says we know how to, f- we know how to fix it, but we're not doing it. But so, you know, the people who are really running the numbers, you know, in the services and, and CAPE and, and RAND and so forth, they're not frequently talking to the media, but, but I'm worried. <laughs> yeah. And that by the time the political level recognizes, including at the Pentagon, recognizes how dire the situation is, it'll already be too late. Do you think that people should realize the domino effect too? Because if they do take Taiwan, then it's only a matter of time before we lose Vietnam, Philippines, and the South China Sea, which comprises what nearly two thirds of world trade. Yeah, I mean, look, the domino effect has a terrible rap. Right, right. It got us into Vietnam, and I'm very, I was shat, I'm shadowed by Vietnam, and I'm thinking about always. I'm sorry for using that term. <laughs> no, 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 but I think, I think it's a reason. But there's some truth to the domino theory, right? The, the part that's wrong about the domino theory is that everything is always interconnected, and this is the argument I have with a lot of hawks in Washington. It's like, oh, well, you know, we don't follow through on some promise in the Balkans. And so people are going to doubt us in Asia. No, no, no. Like people can recognize that sometimes you got to make choices and you got to draw down in one theater to do something else, right? You can't do everything if you don't have enough money, which is the situation we have. But the, so that was the wrong part of the domino theory that there was this kind of inexorable, totally interconnected aspect. But what was true about the domino theory is the fact that countries are looking, this is the phenomenon of bandwagoning. And you're absolutely right. I mean, Duterte in Manila is already saying the things that would happen. So he's saying China's going to dominate. Now, there's enough resistance in the Philippine political and military establishment to kind of slow roll what he's doing. But if Taiwan were to fall, I mean, frankly, I actually think it might be rational for the Philippines to say, well, I guess we, you know, we really should cut our deal now when we can get it good, rather right. than waiting and being subjected. Because China then has an incentive to punish the recalcitrant really harshly. And I think they have the will to do it. And I think you know, if China pulls the trigger on Taiwan, why would it stop? I mean, right. why? Like, if I were a Chinese tr- strategist, I would say, actually, not only would I not stop, I would move quickly because you would want to get out in front of the counterbalancing that would happen. So, like, Japan is now saying, the LDP is saying that they're going to put 2% in their party platform. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> How about doing 2% like right now? Like right now, that's where we should be. So if I were China and I pulled the trigger on Taiwan and I wrapped it up, I would say to Tokyo, if you increase defense spending, we will regard that as a hostile act. Now, I don't know what they would do with that, but they would basically put the heat on these countries, probably the Philippines first, Vietnam. But in that case, 
that that's where the margin we have in Asia is thinner than people appreciate. Right. And 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 if Taiwan did fall, we're going to have to get really crazy, like like Korea level increase in defense effort, right? Because we're going to be in a worse position and we're going to like lost a lot of credibility. So we're going to have to compensate heavily, which is not what we want to do. We want to keep a steady state and then a favorable peace. Isn't also China's strategy multivalent? I mean, it's not, Taiwan is not the same. It's not the same threat for Vietnam as it is for Taiwan. I mean, Vietnam can be completely overwhelmed economically without firing a shot. They may not, you may not necessarily see tanks coming across the border. Uh, So doesn't that suggest that the strategy should be multivalent as well? Well, I don't, I actually I disagree. I mean, I think the Chinese are building a military to project power throughout the region. I mean, they are no longer building a military that is specifically focused on Taiwan. They are building a military to deal with the Taiwan problem. But they're, I mean, this is one of the things talking to, it's great to talk to a a sophisticated defense and military audience like you. It's like, you can run an experiment in a sense about whether a country has, or very likely will have intentions and aspirations beyond something very proximate to it. Because if they're building nuclear-powered aircraft carriers and, well, I don't know, I think they're nuclear-powered, but right. if they're building aircraft carriers and nuclear-powered submarines and a space architecture and amphibious forces, that tells you something. It says, almost certainly says they have the intention to project dominant military power far from their shores. Sure. More yeah. importantly, yeah. it tells you that whatever they think now, they very likely will, because decision makers in the future will have those capabilities. And if they don't have a compelling reason not to use them, they probably will. So- Vietnam. Vietnam is borders China. China is much more advanced than the Vietnamese military now. So people talk about 1979, but like the 1979 war happened when the PLA (laughs) was a peasant military that was facing a military that had been hardened in war against the United States and was supplied by the Soviet Union, which was much more advanced than the PRC. That's not how it's going to go anymore. And I do think the Chinese might actually invade Vietnam. I don't think it's impossible because they wouldn't invade Vietnam almost certainly to annex Vietnam. But if they're going to dominate Asia, they are going to want to be able to project direct military force against recalcitrant countries. And to give you an example, we didn't want to annex Iraq in 2003. George W. Bush wanted them to give up their WMD. And the only way they were ultimately going to do, well, what, what we <laughs> comply <laughs> with the demands. The only way they were going to do that is by the United States invading and overthrowing the, the government. Um, and I think you could see that. Uh, in the case of Vietnam, certainly in the case of the Philippines, and more more to the point, back to the win without fighting thing, what if Beijing, okay, so let's say Taiwan falls, and then Beijing sends a message to the Philippines. Um, I know you've got this uh, visiting forces agreement with the United States that you're resuscitating and you're going forward with. That is a hostile act. Uh, we will regard that as an anti-Chinese uh, policy. And by the way, implementing VFA and EDCA is critical for our military position in Asia and for alliance and coalition cohesion, China, all China has to do is say, by the way, if you don't do what we say, we're not just going to mess with you at the Scarborough Shoal. We can land airborne and Marine forces on Luzon, like whenever we want yeah. and, you know, bombard your key, you know, capital area or whatever with precision. And we're going to make you do it. <laughs> so you can do it voluntarily and keep your dignity, or you can be forced to do it. And I think that's the future that we see. Because you know what? That's kind of what we've done. Right. So. The South China Sea is what they consider core national interest also. 
Yeah, right, exactly. I was going to say this. I was trying to see. It's also a corner. The core national interests seem to expand. <laughs> and it's part of the first island chain. So, I mean, we don't even need to bring in the domino effect because, I mean, Taiwan and South China Sea are almost inextricable as far as what yeah. they believe is theirs. And it's only a matter of time to when they exert complete control over those two or attempt to at least. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think they want to have and, and control over the South China Sea eases the Taiwan military problem, but it also allows China to exercise dominant military pressure over the Southeast Asian states. And in some sense, I mean, Southeast Asia is kind of the critical theater because a lot of people, there's a lot of wealth, a lot of you know GDP. If China can get Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, et cetera, basically to go along with its hegemonic position, they'll be able to split Japan and India uh, and, and, you know, kind of, I, I don't think we'll be strong enough to resist them. Right. We could go on and on. There's, there's a lot to talk about here. Uh, but let's try and summarize a little bit in, in real practical terms. What you're talking about is a real emphasis on it's Siva Peckham Parabellum. I mean, it's, it's, if, you know, it's, if we want to maintain the status quo, uh, that we need to invest in ships, not little tiny littorals, but air, we're talking about aircraft carriers. We're talking about DDGs. We're you know, so we're talking about ships, and we're talking about air power and state having more air power on station or nearby more constantly. Yeah, I, well, I would say chapter eleven of the book are the concrete implications for the defense establishments. Basically, a skeleton version of a national defense strategy, which is. The, the core military missions of the armed services should be one, a major war conventional military that's focused on fighting one major war at a time, and that's China. And that's providing an effective denial defense of our threatened allies in Asia. Now, I don't care whether it's done by bow and arrow or, you know, a spaceship. Realistically, it's going to involve some high technology, but the point is the, is the, is the function, not the form. Obviously, it's going to be more naval and air. But I do think there could be an important role for ground forces in terms of missiles, air defense, logistics, et cetera. And also over time, the Chinese are going to pose a threat to by, by, by land forces, particularly in places like South Korea and so forth. So that's one war, one major war force. That happened with the 2018 National Defense Strategy, as my good friend and colleague Jim Mitri laid out in his really important article in the Washington Quarterly a couple of years ago. But they really need to focus on that and, and a denial defense. And our conventional military should basically not be doing anything else. If you're if you're working on Russia, let alone Iran or North Korea, you should be looking for a new job in the military. You should be looking for a job relating to a denial defense of China, not like, oh, I'm in Africa and China's in Africa. No, you should be figuring out how to defeat because if we lose in the primary theater, we'll lose in the secondary theater. So we got to get the primary theater right. The other two missions of the armed forces are a nuclear deterrent, and we're going to need a nuclear deterrent to deal with both the Russians and the Chinese at the same time. And I don't think we've fleshed out what that means yet. And then third, a low-cost counterterrorism uh, approach, which is genuinely doing CT in a way that is not too demanding. I mean, obviously, the, the force has gotten accustomed to <laughs> calling in every ISR platform and every ship and every you know air asset it could possibly want. No, counterterrorism is not the most important thing, as Secretary Mattis said a couple years ago. It's the Chinese, above all. And then... Uh, uh, you know, if if we can keep a missile defense system that denies the North Koreans or the Iranians uh, homeland uh, attack option at a reasonable cost, I would like to do it. But if it costs too much, we won't be able to do it. And we'll have to rely on a mix of deterrence and defense. 
So this is this is what we should do. And then I think it's got to be a very different approach to our allies, which is what are you doing to help us deal with this problem? My view is we should be looking to work with our allies where their interests are already engaged. So instead of like, it's nice if a British ship occasionally or French ship sails through the Pacific, but it doesn't matter for the military balance. Really what we need is for them to try to be responsible for the conventional defense of NATO Europe and have our role be much, much more narrow and ditto in the Middle East with the Abraham Accords coalition. So this is the, this is the model that I think that if I were back in the Pentagon, this is what I would say. I would say, are we where we need to be on a denial defense for Taiwan? Because if we get Taiwan right, we'll get Japan and the Philippines right, and probably South Korea more or less. Uh, are we doing CT? Oh, you got it. You got a request for forces in the Middle East. Uh, you want F-35? No. Oh, you want that ISR asset? No. Give me another way of doing it. SOCOM, are you actually doing this differently? CENTCOM, are you actually doing this differently? Because obviously that hasn't happened so far, uh, very, very clearly. And the services seem to generally be doing pretty well. The Marines, I think, are in the lead. The Air Forces seem to be pretty impressive in the last couple of years. I do think we need to find ways to divest, to invest, and this is hard. But we also need to maintain the platform capacity to cover down over the near term until the kind of ninja stuff comes in later in the decade and early in the next decade. So that's the vision. I hope, I hope behind the curtains in the Pentagon, this is the way they're talking. It doesn't seem they're talking this way in public, but that doesn't, uh, that's not dispositive, but color me concerned. Well, I think on that note, we will have to end it there for today. The book is The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict. Elbridge Colby, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Great. Thank you, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. And of course, be sure to check out realcleardefense.com for the latest news and opinion on military defense and national security issues that matter. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive the Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For David Craig and everyone here at Real Clear Defense's Hot Wash, I'm John Sorensen.